Good morning. I want to try something today that, um, just to test a theory that we have. Um, you know the disturbance that we've been hearing that's coming through the system? I really honestly think it's coming from cell phones that just are receiving a transmission. So if you have your cell phone with you, would you put it on um, like airplane mode? If you don't want to turn it off, just put it on airplane mode so that it's not getting or receiving anything. And we'll see if that helps because we've tested this um, you know, when there's nobody here and it never causes a problem. So I really do think that there's some kind of a transmission that's occurring and that may be it. So we're going to try it. So if you've got yours with you, just stick it on airplane mode for a few minutes unless you're on call uh, for the emergency room. Then you probably you can go ahead and leave it on. <laughs> um, let's pray before we get going here. Father, I just thank you for uh, the worship today. I thank you for John and his willingness to, uh, to step in and lead this morning and for the words that he spoke. And I thank you for the words that you've given me. And I pray that uh, they would speak to the hearts and minds of uh, those who are here to listen. So we give you praise in all things, Father, and just ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. <clears throat> so over the past several weeks, we've been on this series called God and Money, questions about God and money. And uh, we started off the very first week talking just kind of about a, having a biblical worldview of money, you know, kind of what the Bible says and so forth. Then the second week, we talked about this concept of stewardship, you know, and what it means that if, you know, and I think we prove scripturally that everything is God's, everything, and that we are called to be stewards of that, right? And so what does that mean, to be a steward of what God has provided for us? Then, the last two weeks, we've really talked uh, in detail about this idea of materialism. And specifically last week, we, we talked a lot about the, the destructiveness or the damage that being overly materialistic can do to our Christian walk. You know, if we're focusing on money and things, then that really is becoming an idol. So that was kind of the, I guess, the negative side of it. And so this week, I wanted to take a turn and really start to look at, look at God and money in a more positive sense. And that is going to be this idea of uh, storing up treasures in heaven. So, you know, we've dealt with these barriers that sort of get in the way of thinking correctly about money and possessions. So now, through this through what we'll talk about today, let's start to sort of look at this idea of being God's money managers through the lens of eternity, okay? Why is that important, you may ask? Well, I think it is because unless we look at that through this lens of eternity, then the only other lens that we've got is our own culture, right? And we've we talked at length about the fact that culturally, our, our, culture looks, or our culture looks at money and possessions very, very differently than Scripture does, okay? And so that's why it's important that we make wise countercultural choices that may not be easy in the short run, but will pay huge dividends in the long run. And so I hope to elaborate on that a little bit more today. So first question of the day is, how do we keep money and possessions in perspective? Well... Jesus was pretty clear in telling us where we should put um, 
or where we should place our treasures and our hearts. So he said this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye of the lamp is the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. <clears throat> that comes from Matthew uh, six nineteen through 24. Okay, so in that scripture, Jesus really presents us with three different contrasting pairs of things. First of all, he talked about two treasuries. There's a treasury on earth, and there's a treasury in heaven, which is really kind of present and future, all right? He also talks about two perspectives. Remember, he talked about the good eye and the bad eye, and in Scripture, that's, he's really referring to our perspective on things. And then finally, he talked about two masters, God and money. So let's dive into those three here a little bit. So I think what he's saying is that money is, uh, is only of temporary value unless it's used and spent and shared and given with a view towards heavenly treasure. Okay, Moth destroys fabric, rust corrodes precious metals, and thieves can steal anything, really. Uh, and I think Jesus could have probably gone on and elaborated in, in, on that list a little bit. Fires consume, floods inundate, governments seize things, enemies attack, and investments tank. No earthly treasure is safe. Material things just will not stand the test of time. And even if they escape moth and rust and thieves, they cannot escape the coming fire of God that's going to consume the material world when it all ends. And so the, the primary argument that Jesus is making against amassing material wealth isn't that it's morally wrong, but simply that it's a poor investment. You know, financial planners try to convince people to look ahead instead of focusing on today or this month. They'll say, well, think 30 years from now, right? Because trying to get people to sort of think long-term about a time when they may decide not to work any longer and, and will like to have some money set aside for retirement. And they'll share ways to do that by um, budgeting for savings, by contributing to an IRA, to investing in a mutual fund or a real estate partnership or any one of a number of other uh, investment tools. But if we're thinking about this biblically, then thinking only 30 years ahead is only slightly less short-sighted than thinking 30 days ahead. See, Jesus is the ultimate investment counselor. And he says, don't ask how your investment is going to be paying off in just 30 years. Ask how it will be paying off in 30 million years. Okay, I'm sensing the cell phones are not the problem. Well, it was, a, it was good to try. 
Wise people, according to Jesus, think ahead not to just their retirement years, but to eternity. Treasures on earth just don't last, but treasures in heaven last forever. Now, when Jesus speaks of the eye, as he did in that passage, he's referring to perspective, like I already said. And so what he calls the bad eye was in in Jewish culture and in some other cultures referred to as the evil eye. Familiar with that? That's the term that you will see if you read. Uh, And essentially, the evil eye is one that envies other people, covets what is theirs, and just wishes harm to them in general. And so the Christian's perspective on wealth, which is seen through the good eye, looks at wealth with a more eternal perspective. It sees that these temporary earthly treasures are not only God's provision for us in the near term, but a means to serve God, help others, and in the process, store up these eternal treasures in heaven. See, we gratefully use money to care for ourselves and sometimes to save and invest and build a business. Nothing at all wrong with that. So, you know, again, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But even as we do this, if we have the right perspective, we're seeing it for what it is, which is something that is useful but temporary, right? Which, if it's overvalued or overaccumulated, is going to take control of our lives. And we'll get right back into the previous two Sundays about materialism. That's where it ultimately leads, all right? And so having spoken about, you know, the two treasuries and the two perspectives, he finally talks about two masters, And he says that although we might have both God and money, we cannot serve both God and money. See, there's there's a throne in each life that's only big enough for one. Jesus may be on that throne for you. Money may be on that throne for you. Both can't occupy it. Only big enough for one. And so Jesus is telling us that we should spend our lives investing in the right treasury, heaven, the right perspective, the good eye, and serving the right master, which is God. All right, so question number two. What does it mean to store up treasure in heaven? You store up, I guess first you ask the question, well, how do you store up treasure on earth? Well, it's, it's by accumulating stuff and, and holding on to it, you know, so tightly that your knuckles turn white. By contrast, to store up treasure in heaven means you're holding something very loosely. You're sharing very freely. You're giving away the earthly treasures for kingdom purposes, right? That's what we're talking about. Well, what reason does Jesus give us for storing up treasures in heaven rather than on earth? It's a fair question to ask. Jesus doesn't say it, I I think, because it's right, but because it's smart. We've talked about the fact that those are the treasures that are going to last. So Jesus is really arguing from the bottom line, like any good investment counselor would. It's not an emotional appeal. It's a logical one. Invest in something that has lasting value. There's an old saying that you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Why? 
because you can't take it with you. <laughs> Psalm 49, uh, verses 16 and 17 tells us, Don't be dismayed when the wicked grow rich and their homes become even more splendid. For when they die, they take nothing with them. Their wealth will not follow them into the grave. Most of you know uh, the story of John D. Rockefeller. He was one of the wealthiest men at his time that had ever lived. And uh, after he had died, someone was interviewing his accountant. And they said, so how much money did John D. leave? And the accountant's reply was classic. He said, all of it. <laughs> one more time, you can't take it with you. Okay? So, if we've got that point clear in our mind, we can't take it with us. Now, you're ready to see this paradigm shift, uh, the significance of what Jesus is saying to us in Matthew 6. He takes this profound truth, which is, you can't take it with you, and then he adds a stunning qualification to it. He says this, by telling us to store up treasures for ourselves in heaven, Jesus is saying, not that, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Some people have called this the treasure principle. And honestly, if it doesn't take your breath away, then you're missing the point. Anything that we try to hang on to here is temporary treasure that's ultimately going to be lost. But anytime we put earthly treasures in God's hands, we are storing up for ourselves treasure in heaven. We give, if we give instead of keep, we invest in the eternal instead of the temporal, and we'll store up a treasure that will never stop paying dividends. Now, there are, of course, many good things that God wants us to do with money that don't involve giving it away, okay? It's essential that we provide for our families and provide basic material needs that everybody has. But that's kind of only a beginning of this process. The money that God entrusts to us here on earth, you need to look at as eternal investment capital. Every day you have an opportunity to buy more shares in the kingdom of God. Right? Think about that. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. If you embrace this, I guarantee it will change your life. And see, the thing that, that a lot of people miss is that Jesus is telling us that he wants us to store up treasures in heaven. He's just telling us to stop storing it up in the wrong place. Remember he said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now, does it seem strange to you that Jesus commands us to do what is in our own best interest? You know, at first that seems kind of selfish. But it's not. You see, God expects and commands us to act out of enlightened self-interest. He wants us to live for his glory, but what is for his glory is always for our good. John Piper put it this way. He says, God is most glorified in us 
when we are most satisfied in him. Selfishness is when we pursue gain at the expense of others. Okay, that's an important distinction to make. At the expense of others. But see, when you store up treasures for yourself in heaven, it doesn't reduce the treasure that's available to anybody else. God is an endless supply. And so, by serving God, it, and by, by storing up treasure in heaven, it does not reduce the amount of treasure that's available to anybody else. So everybody gains and nobody loses. How many times do you hear a deal like that? That there's not some sort of weird catch with? Question number three, is storing up treasures in heaven really about giving? Okay, This is kind of a to make sure that we understand this because you will hear people that will teach that there's more, that this is not necessarily about giving money, right? So I'm going to see if I can dispute that a little bit. Some people don't think that Jesus is speaking about giving when he commands us to store up these treasures in heaven rather than on earth. But I think if you look at the immediate context of the verses itself and the, the parallel passages in other gospels, it's, it, it becomes very, very clear that what he is talking about is giving of financial resources. So let's, so in Matthew 6, 1 through 4, before he talks about this idea of treasures on earth versus treasures in heaven, Jesus tells his disciples not to seek reward from men for their giving, for then, in quote, you will have no reward from your heavenly Father. He adds that, he adds that if they do their giving and fasting and praying for God and not for men, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Remember that passage? So Jesus establishes a pretty clear theme here. God rewards his children for practicing spiritual disciplines. And the first one of those is giving. When we surrender our earthly treasures to care for the needy or to love our neighbor or, and further the purposes of God here on earth, he rewards us. And the passage goes on to tell us he does so by turning those earthly treasures into heavenly ones. And so Jesus not only precedes his words about storing treasures in heaven by referring specifically to giving away money, he follows them by calling money a false god and another master. And so serving money as a master happens when what? We hang on to it. We make our treasury here on earth and not in heaven. We topple that idol of money by giving it away and storing up treasure in heaven. So, even if someone at this point concludes that he's, the immediate context of this passage is really not talking about money, um, that it's insufficient to prove that it refers to giving, let's look at the parallel passages in the Synoptic Gospels and see what they say. So here's what Luke says. This is what Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, I should say. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. 
Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moss destroys. For where, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So in this passage, Jesus is explicitly saying that selling our possessions and giving money to the needy produces treasure in the heavens that does not fail. All right, now let's look at Mark. Go, sell everything you have, and give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Well, there it is again. Giving away money and possessions to the poor results directly in treasures in heaven. I don't know how it could be a whole lot more clear. And so not only did Mark and Luke then establish this definitive connection between giving and storing up treasures with Matthew as well, the Apostle Paul did too. Look at what he said in, to Timothy. He says, tell them, and this he's referring to the rich, by the way, just the context of this is he's talking about the rich. And he writes, tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. I contend Paul knew exactly what Jesus was referring to. He was about being commanded to store up treasures in heaven, which is why he used the, ver the exact terminology in his letter that Jesus had used when he spoke. It's done by giving generously to the needy. Now, you know, yes, I think Jesus' words about storing up treasures in heaven can be more broadly applied to how we spend our time and to how we use our abilities. But the central emphasis of the text, which the apostles obviously understood, is about money and possessions. Okay? Craig Bloomberg, who wrote um, the New American Commentary on Matthew, said this. In this context, however, storing up treasures focuses particularly on the compassionate use of material resources to meet others' physical and spiritual needs in keeping with the priority of God's kingdom. Okay, so I think it's pretty clear, based on all of this, that that is what is being referred to. Question five, what is an eternal investment? Well, Christ's position on wealth is not that it, we, we should reject it, but that we should actually pursue it. True wealth is worth seeking. But the question is, what is true wealth? Well, by putting money and possessions in Christ's treasury while we're still on earth, we're assuring ourselves of eternal rewards beyond comprehension. A couple of parables speak to this. The first one says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. Now consider the implications of this offer. We can trade temporal possessions 
that we can't keep to gain eternal possessions we can't lose. We can trade temporal possessions we can't keep to gain eternal possessions we can't lose. Thank you. Can I get a witness? <laughs> this is like a, tr a child trading a broken whistle for a new bicycle. This is like a man accepting majority stock ownership in Coca-Cola in exchange for a bag of bottle caps. Do you hear what I'm saying? Only a fool would pass up this opportunity. Or how about we use an analogy that's a little bit more relevant, relevant <laughs> to the area in which we live. So let's say that you are alive at the end of the Civil War. You're living in the South, but you're actually a Northerner. All right? And you're going to move home as soon as the war is over. Um, there. And so while in the South, you've accumulated a lot of Confederate currency. All right? Now, suppose you know for a fact that the North is going to win the war. And the end is imminent. So if you're a history buff, this is probably post-Battle of Gettysburg, okay, which was the turning point where we, it was kind of given that the North was going to win. What are you going to do with all the Confederate money that you have? Well, if you're smart, there's really only one answer. You should cash it in for U.S. currency. It's the only money that is going to have value after the war is over. All right? You keep enough Confederate currency to meet the short-term needs that you're going to have until the war is finally over. It's exactly the same. Kingdom currency is the only medium of ex exchange that is recognized by the Son of God whose government will last forever. And so the currency, that currency is our present and faithful service and sacrificial use of our resources for him. See, when God returns, when Jesus returns, what happens to all the money that's sitting in bank accounts and retirement programs and estates and foundations? Well, it's going to burn like wood, hay, and straw. Where it could have been used to feed the hungry and fulfill the Great Commission. Now, this is a reach, but suppose with $20,000 I could go buy a new car. I don't know, can I, can I get a smart car for $20,000? No. Huh? A dumb car for, yeah. <laughs> All right, well, we're just going to stay with the 20000 All right. So the idea that, you know, I could either go buy something pretty significant, but with that same money, I could help translate the scriptures for an unreached people group. I could support church planting. I could feed the hungry. I could facilitate gospel literature distribution in Southeast Asia. I could support several full-time missionary families in parts of the world for a year. If I have a kingdom investment mentality, I ask myself, what's the best investment for, for eternity?
People are always looking for safe places to put their money. Jesus says there's ultimately only one place where it will never go up in smoke, and that's the kingdom of God. Once we give it away to some Christ-centered cause, and it's removed from our hands and placed fully in God's hands, it remains safe forever. As he considered his approaching death, Paul describes this eternal investment to Timothy. He says, as for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near, and I have remained faithful. I have finished the race, I have fought the good fight, and now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. Question number five. Where do we find the motivation to invest eternally? Missionary martyr, martyr Jim Elliott put it this way. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's a variation on what I said earlier. Why work for what has no lasting value? Why rejoice over what in the end is not going to matter? 1 Peter 1.4 tells us, We have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled beyond the reach of change or decay. See, in times of suffering, we've got to remember what's awaiting us. We've talked about this idea before. You know, we tend to look at the present, and if things are not going well, we're like, Jesus, where are you? Where did God go? Well, that, that is the wrong perspective to have. Eternal perspective is where you start. Okay. Romans 8, 18 says, What we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. 2 Corinthians 4.17 Our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. See, the glory of Jesus is, is precious above all things. But it's also Jesus that promises this derivative glory for his people that we're going to experience in heaven. I think it's important, too, that Jesus does not say, he doesn't say, store up for God treasures in heaven. It's store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. It may sound selfish, but it's, Jesus' command to us, and we need to be obedient to it. We should be eager to obey it. Christ's promise of eternal rewards for our present stewardship 
gives the believer an incentive to do what the Philippian Christians did in giving to Paul's missionary work, withdrawing funds from their earthly accounts to deposit into ventures with eternal value. Suppose, and this is a suppose, that I offer you $1,000 to spend today however you want. It's not a bad deal. But suppose I give you a choice. I will either give you $1,000 today or you can have $10 million if you wait one year. And then $10 million a year for every year after that. What will you choose? Seems to me that only a fool would take the $1,000 today. year, you know, might seem like a long way to wait. But after you passes, wouldn't you be grateful that you did? Likewise, won't we be far more grateful in heaven that we chose to forego some earthly treasures in order to enjoy forever the treasures that we sent on ahead? It's only when we adopt this eternal perspective that we eagerly follow our Lord's commands to devote the brief life that we have on earth to the pursuit of eternal treasure. I'm going to close with a story that I hope is both, will both inspire you as well as challenge you. I know what challenged me. There was a man named Scott Lewis who attended a conference where Bill Bright, who is an evangelist and who founded Campus Crusade, um, where he, uh, Bill Bright was speaking there, and he challenged this collection of people to give $1 million to help fulfill the Great Commission. I think he challenged each person individually that over the course of their life they would give $1 million. Well, Scott basically laughed. He's like, well, this is far beyond anything he could even imagine since... Um, the machinery business that he had was generating an income of under $50,000 a year. So evidently he's talking to Bill and Bill says, well, how much did you give last year? Well, Scott felt pretty good about his answer. I would too. Scott says we gave $17,000, about 35% of our income. That's pretty impressive. Without blinking an eye, Bill responded, over the next year, why don't you make a goal of giving $50,000? Scott thought that Bill really had not understood what he had said because that was more than he made in a year. And here's the but. Scott and his wife decided to trust God and with Bill's challenge and, and to go ahead and take the challenge and ask God to do the impossible. So they kind of pledged in their own that they would take up this challenge and were, were going to attempt to give $50,000 that year. And you can probably guess what happened. God provided in some amazing ways. And they had this miraculous provision that occurred on December 31st, where we talk all the time about God is rarely early, but he's never late. 
with that December 31st provision, the Lewises were able to give the $50,000 in a year. And uh, at the time that this story was written, they had already passed the $1 million mark in their giving. It can be done. It's a matter of trust. I was talking with someone on Friday night, and they were having all kinds of financial trouble. They had not been good stewards of their money in earlier in their life, and were now having to deal with that. And I mean, they understood why, and it was pretty clear to them what had happened. I mean, they had not, you know, really been a good steward. But the surprising thing to me, and this is a woman that is a Christian, um, I guess surprising, but not all that unpredictable, she's still having trouble trusting God with her finances. You know, you kind of see, well, I, you know, I know I should be doing that, but I don't know. I mean, I'm looking at the bills, and I'm looking, and I just don't see where the money's going to come from. Well, maybe what she needs to do is what Scott Lewis and his wife did, and that's decide up front to pledge X number of dollars and um, trust that God's going to provide and see what happens. Let's pray. Father, we confess that trusting you with our finances is maybe one of the hardest things that you ask us to do. We can trust so many other things to you with much more ease. We can trust our health. We can trust our jobs. We can trust relationships. So many other things, Lord, that we can say, yes, Lord, I give that all to you. But when it comes to, it comes to our finances and money, we hesitate. So, Lord, my prayer is that you would overwhelmingly convince your people that you are just as trustworthy with finances as you are with anything else. In fact, more so, because you tell us that tithing is the one thing that we are to test you on. And so, Lord, if, if anyone has that issue, I just pray for them now that you would begin to speak to them in ways that will help them to realize the truth in that statement and that they would begin to trust you with everything in their lives, not just money and finances, but uh, everything. So I thank you, Lord. Let's give you thanks and praise. And ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.